Of course, I've got a two-year-old and we're sitting in the kitchen and my wife is like, hey, go get a snack out of the pantry. And she's kind of looking around like, this is Greek. I have no idea what you're talking about. And so my wife says, uh, do you know what a pantry is? And she's like, no, I'll go ask Alexa. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. All right, and that was Michael Vinsky, as always, reading the intro. Thanks, Michael, for doing that. Find out more about what he does over at michaelvinsky.com. And uh, here we are, episode 63. You've downloaded this episode. You know what it's about. So uh, we'll just jump in. On the horn with me, much like we did a couple of weeks ago, we've got more than uh, just Chris and I. So Chris is here. Chris, how's it going? Hey, Reed. Nice to be here today in snowy Minneapolis. Oh, man. A lot. It's burning up here in Texas, which also is the home state. Home state, I guess that's not really true, but where you currently live, Dr. Brian Vardabedian is also on with us. I'm here. Thank you. Dr. V in the house. It's great to be here with you guys. Great to be here. Yeah. And so Brian's down in Houston. I'm in Austin. Chris is in Minnesota. So The bold north. Yes. Yes. So, um, and we're doing something a little bit different today, much like we did a few weeks ago. Those that listened to uh, the episode with John Mason shortly before the Connected Hospital podcast launched, and we're going to do the same thing today. So Dr. V is here. We're going to talk about his upcoming podcast, what people can expect, where to go, and then just talk more generally about physicians, technology, hospitals, marketing, all that all that kind of good stuff. So All the stuff we like to talk about. That's right. Well, before we get started, let's uh, give a little bit of love to one of our sponsors, Loyal. Loyal's AI-driven platform provides health systems with the tools they need to amplify patient feedback and guide patients through their digital journey. That's right. Loyal has a multidiscipline team of engineers, marketers, and data scientists, and they partner with some of the nation's leading health systems to promote patient loyalty through a smarter digital patient experience. For more information and certainly to schedule a demo, and be sure to tell them we sent you, visit them online at loyalhealth.com. That is loyalhealth.com. Let's talk about this podcast. Dr. V, you know, you've course blogged for some years now quite a few years and active on twitter and all that but you've got a podcast that's coming out later this month called the exam room tell tell us a little about that you know i've been thinking about podcasting for i guess a year or two and reed i think you pushed me over the edge by by doing it wrong (laughs) no by listening to you and I, i think it it really did push me over the edge and and so I'm really excited about this podcast. It's going to cover some of the more difficult issues that we face in healthcare as physicians. Right now as technology has taken over a lot of what we do with our eyes and our ears and our hands. There's a lot of interesting tensions happening and so uh, the exam room is going to hopefully cover some of that as we go forward. Dr. V, I'm not surprised that you took up podcasting. You've been kind of one of the early adapters of social media, 
for physicians and and your blog. Now you have a, you also have a weekly email now that I subscribe to. So this happens to be just another medium. How do you see podcasting being a way to share the message? You know, it's interesting, Chris, that you brought that up because I've been blogging now, I guess, about nine years. I started 33 Charts as a means of kind of discussing the issues that doctors face as they get into using tools like social media. And as time has gone by, I kind of felt like I needed to kind of change things up a little bit. And so starting the exam room is really kind of a great opportunity to get into a new medium and kind of experiment a little bit. Uh, People have asked me, you know, what exactly is this going to be? And I think I kind of like the idea that this is something I'm going to experiment with and something I'm going to have fun with. And so um, I see this as kind of the the next iteration in my digital journey, so to speak. You're going to experiment with the exam room. That sounds like we're putting some bad metaphors together there. <laughs> no, right. I was no. Yeah. I was on the podcast yeah. today with uh, a guest, and I said this is the place where uncomfortable probing happens. So. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody beforehand, otherwise no one will come on the show. But, uh, (laughs) but no, truly, I want to kind of explore some of these tensions because you know technology is kind of advancing all around us. We have you know doctors and healthcare providers and even nurses are being forced with these new kinds of technologies, and we're kind of we're kind of having to keep up. And there's kind of this inherent tension there, and it's it's kind of fun to think about it and, and talk about it. And I'm, I don't think anyone's done it yet, so I'm pretty excited about it. I think it'd be great. And I, and I think uh, those that are interested and subscribe and, and tune in are going to be in store for some really great conversations with folks that you're going to have on. Let's take a step back for just a second, though. Tell everybody, that, those that aren't familiar with you, you're a physician, obviously, but what do you do? When did you start practicing medicine? And then kind of when did social, you know, social media maybe, but but technology, these new technologies start to make their way into your world? I am a pediatric gastroenterologist at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. I like to say that I was born and raised and cut my teeth in the analog age long before any of these technologies existed. And in 2006, I wrote a book called Colic Solved. And at the time, there was no social media. And everyone said, well, you got to have a blog. And so I started a blog. With the start of that blog, I realized, I mean, despite it kind of starting as this space to kind of promote this book, that I really had a platform to the world. There were some things that happened that made me realize that this was really a game changer. And so I went beyond just promoting the book and kept the blog going. Uh, In 2008, jumped into Twitter. And that's when I first really get into social. And uh, when I did that, it was kind of interesting because there were a number of doctors uh, using Twitter at the time, but yet few of us really had any understanding of what we were supposed to do there, right? What do you do when a patient talks to you? What do you do when someone says something about you? And so I started a site called 33 Charts, which has initially served as a center of community for a lot of the doctors making this transition has kind of evolved from there. At the time, it was it it, it kind of reflects the fact that there was a it was a very small, intimate group of docs, and mm-hmm. things were very different then. Honestly, things have evolved and changed a lot. We sound like old people. We've been on Twitter. I think I think you <laughs> right. and I, we all three of us connected about ten years ago on Twitter, and we were all just trying to feel out this different medium of social media. It's changed a lot over the last ten years. As it evolved, and you started to evolve. Not only your Twitter presence, but 33 charts. The blog kind of evolved, and I, I kind of started again as this area talking about some of the common issues that doctors face when a patient asks you a question, for example. And uh, what's happened since then is I think a lot of the doctors have kind of 
figured out what to do. And uh, just like hospitals, you know, when hospitals were new to social media, you guys know this, no one really knew what to do. And so you guys Mm -hmm. provided that necessary guidance. And so since that time, I pivoted a little bit and thinking more about the role technology is playing and um, and digital technology and social technology and redefining the physician and the provider and how it's shaping us. And the the podcaster is really kind of a natural extension of that dialogue, and it's giving me a, a new way to bring in new voices. And it's an exciting new chapter for me, and I'm looking forward to starting the exam room with, uh, with Touchpoint Media. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And for those that are interested, uh, Dr. Vardabedian wrote a really nice post over on his blog, 33 Charts, about the upcoming podcast. And uh, a little more detail, so something you can go check out, uh, share around, and things like that. You know, one, one interesting piece in there, uh, in that post that you wrote, you know, you talk about focusing on the forces that are reshaping medicine. And I think we've started kind of touching on some of those, but mm-hmm. w- what does that mean? What what forces are reshaping medicine? You know, I think physicians are really undergoing this massive redefinition. For the better part of a couple of hundred years, we showed up at work and kind of did the same thing. We had control of all the information. We had a limited amount of information to give patients. And that's kind of all changed. And there are a variety of forces that are changing that. And obviously, the the elephant in the room is technology. I thought you were going to say Jenny McCarthy and uh, vaccines. (laughs) Right. That too. That (laughs) too. The things we used to do with our eyes and ears and our hands have been replaced by a CT and all these other imaging technologies. Communication is another big one. You know, we used to live in our own worlds connected only by the the people immediately around us. And now we have this connection with this global network. Doctors and patients are now swimming in the same pool, the same information pool. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, all this collectively is leading to this massive amount of information, which is changing everything as well. And so all these things are redefining how we practice medicine and what we do as professionals even. And, and it's kind of an interesting journey and uh, it's not very comfortable at times. I can imagine. You talked about like communications, technology has crept into the patient care settings. It's crept into almost everything in our lives, right? Education, how we learn. Is there a generational feel to these forces? I mean, because, you know, when I talk to doctors, there's some people that are, the younger generation has a different perspective on technology, as opposed to people that have been in the business for a while. Great example is electronic health record, Chris. If you look at just the public narrative around EHRs uh, right now. You even read NPR and New York Times Sunday essays. There's so much negative sentiment towards electronic health records, yet I work with 120 young millennial residents at Texas Children's Hospital, the largest residency in the United States, and you never, never hear these young doctors complain that the EHR (laughs) doesn't work. So this is really like a generational thing. All these doctors who are used to dealing with paper have now been kind of forced to sort of make this pretty substantial shift. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of us just never will quite adapt, and change is only going to happen with retirement. You know what I mean? So, yeah, so there are clearly some some generational differences. I, I will say that there, there are some young physicians that still embrace some of the old technologies, but by and large, there is a large generational shift. Well, relative to that, so Chris and I talk a lot about how technology has outpaced the law, right? And so when we're talking about HIPAA and we're talking about those types of things, that's, that's usually what we're talking about. 
But but in this case, you know, you're talking about like these residents, right? These 120 students, if you will. Has technology evolved to a point if we kept up from an education, a formal education standpoint, medical school, things like that? I mean, is curriculum changing? Absolutely not. We're still using the same format of curriculum as we did in 1910 after what was called the Flexner Report, which in 1910 revolutionized medicine and gave us the two preclinical and two clinical years that currently represents the mode by which we train physicians. So we're doing things pretty much the way we did 100 years ago. We still have students come to amphitheaters where they listen to people talk to them. What's funny, what's happening now is that students aren't showing up for lectures. They're huh. <laughs> uh, using black market communication, black market educational material, watching videos at 2x speed. They're doing things that we really can't even understand. So to your point, we've not kept up. We're still doing things the way we did in the early 20th century. And it's going to be interesting to see the way the chips fall because students are kind of learn things that they're on their own. Does that make sense? I mean, I could see that, you know, using technology where you can connect to physicians across the world. Digital has broken down the barriers of how people get information, consume information. I could see that also happens probably with the patients too, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, information, if we talk about that as the third arm, the third force that sort of changed things, just within my career, Seeing how information has changed the doctor-patient relationship is absolutely crazy. Um, I came into medicine when I was the complete controller of all information. Patients came to see me. The only information they got was from me. And uh, in the you know the mid '90s or what have you, whenever whenever the web was really sort of taken off, uh, early '90s, it was fascinating to see patients having access to information that only I had access to and how they confronted me with it. And going further, these young doctors, you, know, you talk to the old docs, and they're like, they don't want their patients to look at the internet. You still hear, you still hear patients apologize for going to the internet. It's, it's hmm. the most fascinating <laughs> thing. Yet, go back to these 120 pediatric residents of Texas Children's, they've been raised with patients that bring in information. I mean, everybody Googles everything, right? And so I guess to these folks, it's like it would be odd if you didn't Google this stuff prior to coming to see them. Right. And people my age and older kind of want, they still like that idea of they control that access to information, which is really a long, a decade-dated concept at this point. It's been interesting for me to see that evolve because, again, I've, I've seen this transition, which is I would say that I was born at just the right time in history because I'm witnessing this analog to digital transition, which has been absolutely fascinating. That's an interesting transition then to think about something that you talk about a lot, the public physician or the, the public dialogue of, of physicians. So, so what does that mean? Why, why is that a necessary, I guess, discourse or conversation uh, of physicians actually talking in these public spaces? Yeah, again, going back to the way medicine has evolved, for the better part of history, our only connections as physicians were really with the people in our immediate environment, the people in our clinics, the people in our local area. But with the rise of the internet, we really saw the development of public networks, which allowed us to reach out. Beyond that, allowed us to sort of create content and become content creators, right? I created this term I call the public physician, which is our role beyond the immediate meat space where we have 
dialogue and communication uh, with with the broader public. Mm-hmm. And so the reason it's important to think about it intentionally is because it kind of represents a new responsibility for physicians, for, for physicians rather. It's something we have to pay attention to both with respect to our digital footprint. There's a lot of new new kind of rules we have to live by, yet medical education, as we just discussed, has kind of failed to keep up with educating physicians about how we conduct ourselves beyond our immediate space. As physicians get, you know, this, this new generation comes up and, and they are expecting people to go Google stuff. I guess it's important uh, as well that the right information be there, obviously. And so short of physicians participating, I, I don't know how else that happens, honestly. Yeah, and I think we have we do have a responsibility to follow up on your point to to be part of that conversation. Great example is the issue of vaccines and autism. And so you look at what happened 15 years ago. There was a fraudulent paper published linking vaccines with autism. A guy by the name of Andrew Wakefield published this paper. Was since retracted. He was thrown out of the UK. Uh, yet. For a decade, this false information kind of followed on, 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 on the infosphere. And so young families who are anxious or Googling vaccines and autism would get this shrill voice of a very vocal minority. And so for the past decade, physicians, certainly pediatricians, have really been absent from this public conversation where we needed to be to set the record straight to let these families know what the what the, the real facts were. And so fortunately, we're getting closer to coming around. We're bringing more physicians into the public space, be part of these dialogues. And um, it's part of a new responsibility that we're out there, part of this conversation. To that point, you know, I think it makes it really tricky because technology democratizes the way we communicate and the Mm -hmm. way we share information. Yet at the same time, physicians have to be a little bit more responsible about participating in that conversation and kind of guiding them in the right direction. Are you suggesting that, you know, in this new age that there is room for maybe even patients creating medical content? Because we hear a lot about like e-patients and the rise of patients, right? Well, you know, for the better part of modern history, we really felt that the opinion of the physician was really kind of the, the key thing that we should think about. But yet, as all of us have seen on this podcast, the role of the e-patient has really proven to be very valuable. And the insight the patients bring has remarkable ability to move the chains for us. And so, you know, patients have really been uh, marginalized for a long period of time and uh, I think their voice is really actually critical in getting information out. Uh, and so if you just talk about vaccines and autism, the voices of these young mothers who have uh, lost children who weren't vac- uh, vaccinated, it's, it's heartbreaking. But but they become very, very important advocates for us. And so the e-patients play a very critical role in this public dialogue. Uh, they're credible. Um, they have firsthand experience. And... Uh, we're partners with them, really. Physicians do still play a role. Uh, if you look at the Pew Internet analysis of uh, who's trusted, physicians are still the most trusted voices. But e-patients, certainly, that's been a huge shift over the past decade, is just seeing the rise of the e-patient. And uh, I thought it was really dialogue to begin with, but I've, I've really come to understand this is really an important shift for us. You know, we're talking a lot about physician patient dialogue, um, you know, everybody's at the table type of a thing. But there's a lot of value, obviously, in these tools and, and technologies that, that, like you said, allow you to connect with other physicians outside of just the walls of your clinic or your health system or whatever it may be, or even your town. Where are physicians connecting online? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because the, the statistics are not really clear read. 
the, the, the people that really have access to the most granular information about this uh, tend to be uh, industry individuals who have very, very specific information about the way I behave and the way my colleagues behave. And I think the reality is that um, we don't have a huge number of physicians who are engaged in public dialogue in the way that we've been talking about it on this podcast, maybe 25%. It really all gets down to what you define as, as engagement, right? So if you use sure. Twitter once a quarter, once a month, once a week, once a day, once an hour, how do we define whether somebody's engaged? So the statistics become very fuzzy, but I think that the number of physicians who are really in this public conversation are not as big as we would like to believe, and that's discouraging on some level, but hopefully that will change going forward. Does it seem to be more towards a subspecialty type of a role versus the general practice docs, or is there any real rhyme or reason that you can tell? No, it's interesting. If you look at U.S. physicians, uh, some of the most engaged physicians are emergency room physicians, and oh, wow. you know, it isn't exactly clear whether it's something inherent with emergency room physicians, for example, or whether it's just the fact that there were some opinion leaders who were first to the game and get everyone involved. Um, I just had a conversation with uh, Daniel Jin from Creation uh, in the UK. They track all the physicians uh, in the world on social media. And we had a really interesting discussion about the fact that in Europe, for example, there were really marked differences between the way German physicians uh, Spanish physicians and British physicians engage and use social media. So both within specialties as well as within countries, docs all do this differently. And the good news is we'll have, uh, we're have we going to have him on as a guest on the exam room. And we're going to just talk about some of these differences, and it should be really exciting. So what you're saying is all doctors get together on a secret Facebook group <laughs> yeah. and they just talk to each other, right? Is that right. Well, it, it, you, know, you want to know something funny. So if you look at the Baylor medical students, they, they have this secret underground Facebook group. And none of the faculty have figured out how to get into it, and they talk about the faculty, and it's so funny because it drives the faculty absolutely nuts. They've been doing this for years, and I think medical students all in the country do this. And so, uh, I mean, it's just part of it. It's a sign of the times, right, that that the dialogue happens in these channels. Yeah, and probably, and probably non-medical still, you know, I'm sure other students do it as well, right? You know, they, yeah, no, of course, of course. They do. Uh, Rate your professor <laughs> but, but and all that. But I think, that. you know, it lends itself to, to this particular uh, space because obviously to become an MD, you're in school longer with people and lots of hours and, you know, that kind of thing versus, you know, I took a business class with somebody and, you know, I haven't seen them since. So in terms of like places where docs light, probably Twitter remains probably the center centerpiece for where doctors hang out. And I think that's why creation in the UK and the W2O group is focused on Twitter as a means of following physician conversations. There's yet to be sort of like a defined physician network. I know Sermo tried to do it and they kind of went by the wayside. Doximity has kind of evolved as less of a social network and more of a platform, so to speak. They're kind of slowly evolving as kind of an Amazon of uh, healthcare providers. They're even reaching beyond physicians. So there is yet to be kind of a core network for physicians or place where they hang out. Do you think that there will be a core network where physicians hang out? I mean, we hear this a lot on the EMR, EHR side of the house, right? We don't want, we want to have interconnectivity among yeah. patient records. Yeah. Um, and, and we want to have probably also have interconnectivity among physician communications. But I think the industry itself is kind of set against that. Yeah. So in terms of social networks, the road to this goal is strewn with like the skeletons of people who tried to do this as a, as a 
just a half dozen companies that I've remembered in the past decade that have really tried to do this. And it's, I don't know, I don't know what the problem is. I, I think that medicine is so diverse and so wide that to get everybody on board is a challenge. And you compound that with the fact that longer than five years ago, everybody's really skeptical about public conversation. It's only recently that doctors are willing to kind of open up and recognize the power of this. This week, there was this this doctor, this cardi- famous cardiologist, Milton Packer, who went on MedPage today and, and had this this tirade against Twitter. And it, it, it was the most fascinating thing because it was a real old school view of Twitter and how it's wastes our time and everything else. And there was this huge backlash and just showed me how far things had come because eight years ago, every all the old old school physicians were saying this, like complete waste of time. But yet this this rebound this week of this just tells me that we're so not used to hearing this that so I wrote on 33 charts with this thing the uh, the Twitter education of Milton Packer. And so it's got thousands of views. And I really kind of broke down how I would educate this guy if I had him in a room. And so things have changed. Things have changed for sure. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors. And that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. Let's uh, pretend you have the opportunity to educate the new doctor that's coming out of residency, right? And you want to say to them... Okay, this is your digital footprint. This is what you're what you have as a public physician today. What would you tell them? You know, what what should they be doing? What should they be looking well, at? Well, you know, I would of course tell them what they probably already know, which is that when patients begin to look for a physician, they begin online. And so it's actually already reached the point where if you can't find information about a physician or anyone for that matter, it's almost creepy, right? <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. true. I mean, you, know, you try to look someone it's like, why can't I find anything about this person? So uh, digital footprint or what people understand about us when they look online is part of a new professional responsibility. And so that's what I would tell this young physician. And then I would sort of go on and, and uh, let them know ways they could do that. Um, and, and, and ways they could begin to do that. And I think a, a lot of these young physicians have some sense of that, but um, um, it's tricky because they don't know how to do that as a professional. And then you tell them to use Snapchat. <laughs> well, not exactly. I mean, so we, we have, have a four-year curriculum at Baylor, and we tell our graduating students to uh, – we really center them in, uh, in LinkedIn, make sure they build a really strong LinkedIn profile with a photograph – narrative bio and uh, and built-out information. Uh, we have them build out their doximity profile, which is effectively a, a professional form of LinkedIn. And that is a great cornerstone because that's going to occupy you know the top half of Google uh, on the first page if uh, a lot of these doctors search. So we start there. Then we talk. So those are like, like your static profiles, which you absolutely want to have. And this goes for every professional, honestly. And then there's sort of the content creation. So you want to think about what are you, where are you going to park content that you write about your profession? Are you going to do it on your hospital website, which is a great opportunity for hospitals? You're going to go to Kevin MD, uh, what have you. And so uh, there are different elements of how we can shape our footprint, but it starts with that public facing profile like 
Doximity and LinkedIn. And then we build content around that. And then the final coup de grace is sort of to do the conversation places like Twitter and things like that, that pull people back to that content, that beautiful content that you've worked so hard to create. Yeah, and ultimately subscribe to the Xamarin. Yes, I mean, that's all you need to do, really. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. What's the downside, you know, for these physicians going out, you know, creating this content, uh, or maybe initially these cornerstone pieces, is there a downside? You know, Reed, that's a great question. And, you know, this is the thing that's pulled physicians back just for years. It's like, oh, there's a risk that somebody could sue me or do this or that or whatever. And there's this constant balance of risk and opportunity. And obviously, when you put your name out there, when you put an opinion out there, there's risk that comes with that. Uh, the legal risk is actually pretty slim. I mean, gosh, in a decade, I don't know, but maybe one or two doctors ever had any kind of legal issue with stuff they published. But that risk needs to be balanced with the opportunity that comes with visibility. And as I've always tell our students with vis- you know visibility creates opportunity and so you got to be out there and there are risks but they're 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 overstated and i mean i guess some of it may even just be from a convenience standpoint right the more accessible at least that maybe you appear to be the more likely patients want to connect with you and ask questions or you know th- things that you legally well one of the great features of both blogging and the social media platforms that we've discussed so far is the fact that it allows us to kind of expose our human side. It it shows a piece of us that for several hundred years, no one, no one really knew about. We, you know, things that, things that bother us, things that really represent our, our, our human side. It's kind of like looking inside the white coat. And I think that that humanizes us on a certain level. If we, if we allow ourselves to do it, one of the things that I've seen, and maybe you guys have seen this too, when I first started on Twitter, nine years ago, things were a lot more open. I was, a, I was a little wilder. And what's happened is since all the hospital executives from, my, from, from Texas Children's Hospital have gotten on board, I see them looking over my shoulder every time I send a tweet, which is good and bad, right? Because <laughs> I've kind of sterilized. My voice has become my, like more corporate. And I've, I've just seen that change with physicians that the Twitter, like the Twitter feed has become very, very kind of sterilized, which is... It's a good and a bad thing. I think we've cleaned it up a bit, but there is a the weird side of it that's kind of gone, but it's just part of history, I guess, right? I like the idea of humanizing doctors, although there's some doctors that it just seems like that might be a really uphill battle, right, to get them to be a little bit more looser and, and easier to use these social channels. But the thing I keep coming back to, and we hear this a lot when we talk to physicians, and you know, I know Reed and I have talked to, and I'm sure you have too, is like the time that's dedicated to this. I mean, how do you balance that? I, you know, it's some organizations are, are trying to think about, can we compensate people? Just to touch upon that compensation issue. It's surprising to me that more large healthcare systems have not hired physicians to sort of be professional elements in sort of the public dialogue. Uh, Seattle Children's has done this, of course, with Wendy Sue Swanson, who is a, who's a paid member of their, their marketing team. Uh, Boston Children's had a physician that was a 0.5 FTE for many years. And so I'm surprised that that hasn't, that hasn't quite taken off. For the rest of us uh, who, aren't, who aren't sort of professional communicators or hospitals, we really have to kind of allocate our time and decide where we're going to 
where we're going to live, where we're going to create our content, where we're going to have our conversations. Because to your point, Chris, we really do have a limited amount of time and we have to decide my platform is going to be Twitter and I'm going to blog once a week, you know, and, and when I talk to docs, that's kind of the way I, I, I try to manage it rather than, than them trying to do everything, which is sort of the nail in the coffin. They try to do everything as we've all learned. So picking our platforms, deciding what we want to do, and uh, is probably one of the keys for physicians who are getting into this or hospitals who are getting doctors to get into it. You mentioned uh, Dr. Swanson, Wendy C. Swanson, and uh, I asked her the same question several years ago, you know, because at the time, obviously, she was blogging under the umbrella of a hospital, or I guess still is. So I thought, hey, I'm going to get a great answer here because I get questions. I get this question all the time from hospitals about time, you know. And we were all up at the Mayo Clinic uh, one of those years, I don't know, five, six, seven years ago. And I was like, hey, how, how do you how do you have time to do this? And I thought she was going to have like this really like, I use this project management software and, you know, and I structure my day this way. And her answer, which was really disheartening, was um, I don't watch television. I mean, that's I one like, angle. Oh. Yeah. Well, there you go. And, and I think really what that means to me is it's just important enough to her to do it. That was the concession she had to make. So for somebody else, it may be something different. Um, but that it was just important. Yeah, yeah. Both for, for Wendy and I, we've both spoken about this uh, publicly, is the fact that we, we see this as something of a moral obligation. Uh, Wendy sees herself as being able to reach a multiple of families and impact uh, health more than she could one-on-one in an exam room. I've kind of seen the same thing. So it is important. And for individuals, as I've suggested, this is part of a new responsibility. We really have to be looking at our public presence. It's um, it's what's expected of us. The CEO of Google said about three, four years ago that with visibility is sort of the new, um, it, it's kind of a new responsibility and it's something that people expect when they look online. And so it uh, goes for physicians as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we're talking about this responsibility to participate. There's probably some arguments to be made on what that means, you know, personal versus within your organization. And so a lot of our audience, obviously, are, are folks like Chris and I are, come from a, a, a marketing and communications background within, within a healthcare system, within a hospital, maybe more specifically. And so what, you know, kind of what are your thoughts there uh, relative to they have doctors on medical staff, typically, and, and depending on where they are, or who they are, to a varying degree, they may not have a Dr. V, they may not have a Wendy Sue Swanson or, you know, something like that. But what what is your feel for uh, the physician's responsibility to their own brand and their own digital footprint and then also aiding to the footprint of the organization where, where they practice? Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately m- most of us are driven by our own needs. I mean, while we all want to be good and good brand ambassadors for our hospitals and whatnot, uh, for hospital communication professionals and health communication professionals, we really have to appeal to the individual ego or mindset of the physicians on the medical staff. So we have to create the value proposition for that individual doctor. And so for a medium-sized hospital, you want to try to identify two or three people or a handful of people who would appear to have a knack for something like this, who may want to jump on, who can be sort of... You can kind of get the ball rolling for you. 
It doesn't take a vast number of physicians on a medical staff to kind of create a meaningful public presence. It's key to kind of identify those those key people who can get the ball rolling for you. But you have to kind of appeal to, to what works for them. And for, for many doctors, it's this this idea that they're going to have a broader reach, that they can have visibility. For some, it's going to be money. For some, it's going to be ego. And so money being patient referrals uh, in, a, in a cardiovascular program, for example. You guys have a tough nut to crack as uh, hospital professionals because we're not easy to get into the, into the fold. Hey, we can always promise you guys to uh, be, you know, take pictures of you posing in your white jackets with your arms crossed, though. That always helps. Yeah, exactly. That um, you mentioned, you know, that uh, it helps with referrals, it can help with ego. Some of the things that I found in, in my history of trying to get doctors involved, it's also uh, a really great way to reflect back to what you were saying earlier, Dr. V. It's a really great way to bring out the personality of that individual physician and and bring forward the reasons why they actually get into the care practice to begin with. They want to impart and share education and information. I used to say to to other doctors that I was working with, it's like, you know, pretend like your bedside, pretend you're talking to a patient instead of talking to me. I think many of us don't have a problem doing that at the bedside to your point, Chris. And I think getting people to tap into why they went into medicine to begin with, I think we'd have a lot more success uh, because many of us, while we've had this, this creative piece of us kind of stripped away through medical school and residency. It really is exciting to kind of get out there and, and tell our, be storytellers and to share our passion. And so if you can get doctors to break through that, as you suggested, Chris, that's kind of that, that's a challenge. It's easier said than done, but uh, to your point, I think that's, you got to get a couple of people to get the ball rolling. And so every organization has people that are sort of more apt to do that. You know, I, I mentioned this earlier in a podcast we did a, a while ago about video. I had this little trick where, you know, the doctors would come and they would be very much with their ties and talk very, very clinically about a particular procedure or treatment or something. Yeah. And then and then I would be off camera and I would ask them, well, you know, my mother has this particular type of condition. What should I tell her about this? And then get that gets them to change their voice a little bit in that video conversation. I actually ended up using that trick, by the way, for every physician I was interviewing. And after a while, the videographers turned to me and they said, boy, you must have a really sick family. <laughs> Chris just lies yeah. to everybody he interviews. So no, it's true. Here. You know, we we kind of we, we get you know, we get in front of the camera what or whatnot, and we we kind of freeze up and we think we have to act a certain way when when in fact we've got all the tools to kind of tell the most amazing stories. Yet it takes talented communication professionals very often to kind of pull that out of us, like you, Chris. And I've I've had media training uh, on, on three or four occasions and. Uh, it's a real skill that you guys have to, to kind of get these stories out of us. And uh, it's a credit to what you guys do for work. Well, we take total credit because we're, <laughs> we're experts. <laughs> uh, all right. So uh, I'm listening to this podcast. I'm a marketing uh, director at a hospital and I don't you know who knows where. And uh, I've got some ideas of like, okay, I'd like to get physicians involved. You know, how do I get these people working alongside me like Dr. Justin Smith up at Cook Children's or Wendy Sue Swanson or you know, some of these that are kind of aligned with the marketing departments? Do you have any tips on how to identify who might be a good fit, you know, where, where to start, so to speak, when you're looking at your medical staff? What we did when we started a blog at Texas Children's Hospital seven or eight years ago, um, 
you know, we held uh, town halls, uh, probably six or eight town halls to kind of tell what we were doing, uh, to kind of announce that we were starting this blog. And we needed writers. We needed people to tell their stories, people that wanted to share basic clinical information. And what that did was that people came into these, these, these small breakfast sessions we had, and people actually stepped forward. So it was a great starting spot. Uh, for us, and uh, you know, it brought a dozen physicians in who were willing to write. And once it starts, certainly the blog itself. Once it starts, uh, people start to, to to pile onto it, and that worked. Now, obviously, not everyone who jumped on at the beginning uh, continued, but there were key people who are clear, natural communicators. And it's a means. You know, it's a, it's an issue of kind of trying to identify who those people are. And that's for blogging. You can kind of create the same scenario for video and what have you, but I think some hospital systems just are afraid. They're afraid to ask, and so that's kind of the first place to start. I think you know, or they, or they could do audio, right? They could. Just yes, exactly. I think every physician has to find what they're good at, right? I can write really well. I'm not so great on video. I can do video if you force me, but and so you have to find where you fit because this whole this whole continuum of media and one doc may fit into. Uh, like Justin with audio and, and so on. And so uh, that's great. And I think that's a great point and uh, maybe a good one to end on. So again, the new podcast is called the exam room. You can learn more about that over at 33 charts.com or over on our site, touchpoint.health. And we will have links to how you can subscribe, find out more. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else. They've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems. Kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. Touchpoint. Touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready? Fight! Okay, getting to my favorite part of the podcast. Well, I have lots of favorite parts of our podcast, but this one is pretty good because I do like to argue with Reed. And uh, Brian, since you're a guest today on the show, you know, this is the segment, Touchpoint, Touch, Counterpoint, where Reed and I face off against the side of an argument. And we thought, since you're the guest, why don't you uh, offer us a topic that we can argue about? Okay, well, good. Uh, following through some of our discussion, I kind of wanted you guys to argue about whether physicians should have a formalized role in marketing and communication within hospitals. Absolutely. I mean, who's better, who's better to, um, 
you know, spread the good news, so to speak, then then some of our physicians, the clinical voice, everybody knows that you don't want to talk to a logo. So it'd be great to have some folks there with some actual expertise talking up the hospital and uh, services. Good point, Reed. Are you kidding me? We don't pay doctors <laughs> to participate in marketing and communications. They are there because they're clinical experts. That's why we hire a marketing and communications team. I, of course, I don't get me wrong. They're the subject matter experts. But what they should be doing is calling the 5 a.m. meetings to have us show up. And they can dictate to us what we have to say. <laughs> and then we'll message it and, and make it into, into the right pieces online. Come on, Reed. We're not hiring them to do marketing. We're not hiring them to do marketing. Everybody's marketing, right? I mean, the guy that's in patient access when you first walk in the hospital is in marketing. Good point, Reed. Good point. Of course, of course they're in marketing. And so, I mean, we've got all we do is beg for content. So, I mean, if you had someone as part of the team, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing the downside here. I, I don't understand what we, while we're against this. If we start to have our physicians out there and doing marketing communication, just kind of showing up in the marketing suite, they're not trained that way. I mean, it's going to be as ludicrous as like a president who's on Twitter all the time. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, there it is. Good point, Chris. I was wondering, what's the timestamp? How far were we in before we had a reference to... But here's the thing. I'm not saying give them like a license to Adobe Creative Cloud or something and like they're going to be making banners. <laughs> like, come on, it's a strategic role. Uh, okay, strategically, again, I understand their role as a subject matter experts, but really the reason why we hire marketing communication staff is to help to understand these different channels and to really help understand how we're going to message, what our tone, what our voice is. Look, I get it. Maybe they're partners with us on the marketing communications, but certainly, I, I don't know, making them a, a member of our marketing team, that sounds like a little bit of a slippery slope. There you have it. You're wrong. <laughs> What are your thoughts, Brian, Dr. V? What are your thoughts? No, I mean, I think uh, I probably err on the side of, uh, of Reed's argument. I think that uh, we have a unique perspective, and it can be a slippery slope, if it's, but if it's done properly by health communication professionals like yourself, I think it's something that can have some real, create some real opportunities for hospitals. Well, there you go. I win. So. <laughs> Hashtag fake news. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back and wrapping up episode. What are we? Sixty three. Sixty three. Yeah, it's hard to keep hard to keep track at this point. About as so, old as that um, guy who doesn't like Twitter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so it's been a great episode. It's been a lot of fun to have uh, Dr. Brian Vardabedian on talking about the new podcast, the Exam Room, that's coming out. Uh, anything else that's coming up for you, Dr. V? No, I, you can just follow along as I narrate my experience with the exam room over on 33charts.com. You can follow me at Dr. Underscore V on Twitter, and uh, you can get great information there as well. Very good. Well, Chris and I will be in uh, the great state of Utah, Salt Lake City, here in just a couple of weeks now at the uh, Forums for Healthcare Strategists. Healthcare Physician Marketing Summit. 
Mm-hmm. So that'll be good. Doing a session on podcasting. We'll also record a episode of the podcast while we're there, of course, and talk to a bunch of folks. So if you're going to be there, let us know. We'd love to uh, connect with you. Mm-hmm. Find us over on Twitter, LinkedIn, all that kind of fun stuff. That's right. That's right. Recommendations. Chris, won't you? Uh, won't you go first? Okay. Well. Reed and Dr. V, my uh, wife and I just recently bought a house. Wow. Now, we haven't closed on the house yet, mm-hmm. right? But uh, it's we're closing next month. But that hasn't stopped my wife from already creating a Pinterest board. Do people still use that? That's still a thing? Pinterest still exists? Okay. <laughs> That's still a thing. Sure. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that she's doing, what's cool about Pinterest is they actually now started to create, can create sub-pin boards. So now she's creating pins oh, for boy. different rooms but that's not my recommendation pinterest is not my recommendation um i don't get it either but that might be because i'm a man i don't know what i'm gonna recommend is wayfair.com have you guys been out there on the wayfair.com lately wayfair what is that my wife has for sure it's a online department store oh, is what they call it but it's a great place where you can actually see a variety of different products that um, are, are really to, to decorate your home. Okay. And it's set up in a very similar way as Pinterest is, which is interesting when you kind of navigate through the site. And I know, look, we've been to furniture sites all the time. That's great. But Wayfair does kind of a great job because it puts together uh, settings and it allows you to really kind of look at the furniture in the wild, so to speak. And uh, it makes it really easy to order. Now, we haven't ordered anything yet, but I have a feeling that we will in the near future. Very cool. Very nice. Good recommendation. Dr. V, what? Well, I have to recommend what's sitting right in front of me, which is Evernote. I have a, a big screen here with my uh, with my notes for uh, the exam room. Uh, I did an interview just before this, and I was able to organize uh, three or four different panels of questions. And I've been a long, long-term user of uh, Evernote, and so... Just another way I can use it to organize uh, how I talk to you guys. So, Reed, you got to run for your money there. Um, It used to be many years ago, I I would joke Reed about him being sort of a spokesperson for Evernote. It sounds like you are now. He used to have Evernote socks. Yeah. (laughs) Probably shouldn't disclose that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'll post a link. It's an affiliate <laughs> link. I get point now. I'm just kidding. I can't do that. But, oh, man. It's good stuff. Evernote is great, though. Evernote is great. It's good stuff. Um, I'm going to go a little bit more analog. Uh, I'm going to actually recommend a beehive. Oh, jeez. Mm. Everybody should have a beehive. Oh, really? yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. No, so I've just I've just recently gotten into this. My uh, my preacher actually got me into it. So, anyway, I built a beehive, uh, but you can obviously purchase them. And uh, now we have uh, a whole swarm of bees uh, on our property. And just one short year from now, I'll have a nominal amount of honey. So that's pretty exciting. Amazing. And um, it's supposed to be really good for your allergies. Cool. So there you go. I'm going to come to Liberty Hill <laughs> yeah. and check it out. Yeah, he brought the bees over because, I mean, these were actually removed from someone's backyard, the bees were. Uh, this time of year, they swarm, which means that's when all the babies hatch. The queen gets kicked out and takes part of the bees with you know, the hive splits, so to speak. Wow. Um, and so they're looking for a new home. So you can find them swarming this time of year and rehome them, so to speak. And, uh, man, that's a lot of bees. I'm somehow hearing the theme song for uh, The Lion King in the background here. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. 
Well, very cool. Well, thanks, uh, thanks to Dr. V for being on again. Links in the show notes and on. Thank you, guys. It's been a lot of it's been a lot of fun. More to come. We'll be sure, obviously, to talk about uh, upcoming episodes of the exam room right here. But for more information, again, 33charts.com or touchpoint.health. We have a trailer out there on, on all the websites. Go give it a listen and make sure that you're lined up because the first episode's coming out soon. Yep. There you go. There you go. Well, for Dr. Brian Vardavidian, Chris Boyer, myself, thanks for listening. And uh, at least two of us, we'll see you next week.